welcome to an American but not really podcast. This podcast is for everyone who is navigating life in America, from newcomers to established professionals who have some small and big questions for the society about values, morals, careers, parenting, politics, economy, health, relationships, everything. Based on my 30 years of life experience in USA, having worked in film, advertising, marketing, PR, news broadcasting, and design, from interviewing Larry King to art directing for big corporations, we're here to talk about what it's been like living in USA. Please join in and subscribe. Hello, and welcome back to an American But Not Really podcast. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest, a fellow New Yorker, founder of Amy's Bread, a New York institution, an author, and a winner of numerous awards in the culinary and business fields, Amy Sherber. Her New York artisan bread empire is the focus of our conversation as she takes the listeners through her journey of starting with a corner bread shop 30 years ago with just five employees to being recognized now as one of the best bread bakers in the U.S. She survived the pandemics with the help of the community she so carefully built over the years with her high-quality products and, most of all, her devotion to the city she calls home now, and with her continuous support for the environment and local producers. So without further ado, here's Amy Sherber. Hi, Amy. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Oh, very good, thank you. Um, first of all, happy belated 30th birthday to Amy's Bread. Um, Thank you. you. turned 30 last year, and um, how does it feel? Well, we actually just hit our 31st anniversary in June, so we're feeling even more, you know, like long-term here, but it's good. It feels, I guess it seems like maybe we have a lot of stability having had that many anniversaries now, so I feel proud and, um, you know, and satisfied, I think, too, with having survived all these years. So, yeah, it's so far so good. Yeah, 30 years in baking business is a very big, you know, it's a significant number because of, you know, for those who do not know, uh, New York is the megapolis for food and there are hundreds of, you know, pastry and baked good shops, not including big commercial chains like Starbucks and mm -hmm. such. So it's it's a big deal. So congratulations again. <laughs> oh, thank you very um, much. Yeah, it's I'm been very a yeah. Journey. I'm very excited to talk to you about you know your shop. Um, I don't know if you you know um, I've mentioned before, but I used to live in house kitchen, and I used to live right on the corner from your um, shop. That's how I discovered, and that was in two thousand twelve. Yeah, two thousand twelve. I was living. Right. There. And then I continued living um, for another three, four years. So I got to know the neighborhood very well. But your shop was right on the corner. And I remember every weekend I would go and buy coffee and pastry there. So um, so it kind of like brings good memories because every time I am in the neighborhood, I go through all the local shops that I used to go to that still exist and you know try to buy stuff and just it's kind of like also nostalgic not to mention it's delicious but it's also nostalgic you know just to see that the businesses are still there and they they work they you know some of them thriving you know so um and during the COVID pandemic uh, you know many local businesses uh, and shops closed and some reopened but some closed for good uh, did you think you you survived the pandemics 
Well, you know, it's an interesting question because in the very beginning, we didn't think anyone could survive, you know, because there was no business and our business, a lot of it is wholesale, like 60% is wholesale, 40% retail. So wholesale was completely, you know, ending because nobody was, no restaurants could open and most stores weren't open except um, grocery stores and then a hospital that was a big customer of ours. So we weren't sure how that would go. And then our, most of our cafes, we have seven locations. Many of them are in places where they're handled by, they're managed by like a company or they're in a public space like the public library. And all of those were shut down. So we only had our Hell's Kitchen location and then our location in Brooklyn that we could decide if we were open or not. So we had two stores and then we had our small wholesale business. And, you know, we had to go from 170 employees down to like a very, very tiny staff. We had 63 employees when we had to cut everybody, you know, lay people off. So then we tried to do everything with that small staff. And, you know, we just didn't know what would happen. But once we found out that there were going to be some government, you know, loans and money coming like that, we found out that it would be possible to survive. And then we tried to figure out the best way to go about, you know, getting, staying open and keeping the business alive with what we could do. And the good thing was that our Hell's Kitchen location was our best location of everywhere because it's a neighborhood. And over the years, you know, let's say in the 2016 to 2020 or something like that, it became so busy with a lot of tourists in the area that a lot of the, lo the local people who live in the neighborhood felt like they couldn't, they didn't want to wait in the line because it would take too long. So they didn't come in as often. So once COVID hit and they were walking down the street, like wanting something and something to treat themselves, to give themselves that care that they were longing for because everyone was, everything was so upsetting mm -hmm. and they were working from home and everything. They, came to us to get their bread and their pastries and just to have someone to talk to their mm -hmm. coffee. And so our, we had two or three people who worked every day and they were the best staff. So nice and so friendly. And we just had the best time, like making everything for Hell's Kitchen store because it gave us a purpose every day. Like we never closed for one single day. We made all our cakes every day. We made all our pastries, all our breads because we wanted to make food for people and, and just be there for our, our neighborhood. So Mm -hmm. It was really lovely to actually get to know the customers better now. And they've still been coming back because we all needed each other. And it was a really lovely kind of exchange of like, we're there for them and they're there for us. And um, we want to keep going with that now. But it, that's how we survived was that neighborhood really, really helped us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a strong community. Um, and I spoke with Phil about this as well. And and it's it's one of the communities that I, I feel like it, it has a community and I've lived in different parts of the city. So um, downtown, like, you know, in Battery Park City also feels like a community, but it's not often the same. I don't feel the same in Soho or up east side even. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's different. Like different neighborhoods just don't have that feel of like cohesiveness and like if there's something where the people are part of a, a real community. So I'm, I'm glad that you feel that for Hell's Kitchen. I think it really is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I always feel like, um, you know, there's people who have been living there for ages. Um, so it always feels like there's still this sense of, you know, community and people who know each other and neighbors who've been 
you know, knowing each other and living next to each other for forever. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Have you ever thought that, you know, 30 years ago when you opened your bakery in, you know, Hell's Kitchen, part of the city, that you'd grow from, you know, five to 100 plus employees with customers from neighborhood residents to wholesale customers? Well, I really didn't expect that. I did not know what I was getting into. And, you know, I wanted to be have a neighborhood bakery, but I did like the idea of selling some bread to some restaurants because I knew quite a few chefs after having worked in restaurants. And I had this dream of having some of them as my customers to get my bread out into restaurants and to show customers what, you know, to show the public what we could do. So I hoped that that would work, but I, I really didn't know which way it would go. And, you know, once I got the doors open, I really, I just wanted to, survive. I really didn't know where we would go. And I didn't have an imagined dream of having a certain number of stores or certain size business. I just wanted to, you know, have the one spot, the one little spot, and one business, but it kept on going. And I think New York needed what we were making and we got great feedback from our customers and there was enough demand to keep on, you know, making a little bit more and growing our business little by little. So I could never have pictured what you know, how it would all unfold over the years. And it was kind of a new time for bakeries because there were the old school bakeries that were kind of dying out and they weren't that innovative. They had maybe a few kinds, two or three kinds of Italian bread and, you know, I don't know, even two sandwich rolls and that was it. Or they were mm -hmm. a German, German bakery or a Jewish bakery, but they didn't really have a breadth of products. So if when we opened with bread and then people, people wanted something sweet and we added something sweet and then we added really nice coffee and then we added sandwiches and then you know like let's say after the first eight years we added cake layer cakes we could see that there was really an interest in having like a full selection and the bakery that has that will survive but that didn't really exist when I first opened it was it was there was um Eli's bread and then bread alone was upstate and they were kind of making their way into the city through farmer's markets. Then mm. there was a Panis over on the Upper East Side in the 60s that had a lovely shop, which was mainly bread with a few small pastries and mainly um, really nice little focaccias and things like that. Mm -hmm. But other than that, there were no other real quality bakeries that made, you know, handmade bread, artisan bread, whatever you want to call it, handcrafted. Mm -hmm. It just happened. And then after I opened, a few other bakeries opened after me, like Sullivan Street opened a couple of years later, and then or um, Washers existed, but it became a more modern bakery. It used to be kind of more old world, pumpernickel and things like that. And then you also have things like um, Pan d'Avignon came along and and other bakeries of, of that sort. And then at, um, Balthazar. So those businesses came after me, but still they've been around quite a long time now. And then we have the current way, which is a lot, a lot of small businesses that are independent, just maybe have one location, possibly two, often coming from a foreign country, and they have a foundation in another country, like Ole and Steen, or on um, Bork Street from, you know, they're from very far away, or there's a bakery that's from Sweden um, on 14th Street that's very good. So, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. Not the, it's evolved a lot <laughs> since I first opened mm -hmm. 31 years ago a real lot so yeah no I see it um I see it all over New York um and I was just thinking about it yeah it it's um you we used to have like you said there was just a few like Zabar and there's a few that been 
for many years around, but not as many. But now it feels like, you know, it's the small businesses in a way, this kind of like you said, artisan uh, places have been popping all over the city. I mean, I'm talking about anything between, you know, bakeries to cosmetics and things like that, like some very um, kind of unique shops. Um, but it wasn't like that. It was mostly chains and some very old, like I said, traditional um, historic places. Um, so, <laughs> it's, yeah. Um, so you grew up in uh, Minneapolis. Um, how come you didn't start your business there? Um, like, could you tell your story? Um, because your story is pretty pretty interesting how you moved around and you studied in Europe and France and then you ended up in New York and you first worked in marketing but then you decided to go into baking business um could you tell a little bit how you know a little trip from kind of uh, how you ended up from Minneapolis to um in New York sure sure yeah so I grew up I was born there and I grew up there I went to college in Minnesota at St. Olaf College and after college, I tried to find a job in marketing. And I really, it was a really rough time at that point. There were very few good jobs out there. And all my friends and I had great education, but we had to get jobs doing things we wouldn't think would, we would do with a college degree. But then I got a job in a really nice restaurant and I helped them open a second location. And it was actually so much fun because I, I was good at it. And I loved, you know, I ran, I was the front of the house. I was a server, but I also helped to train the whole staff and plan the flow of how things worked. I worked as a host. So I really loved that. We were doing beautiful food, really innovative, high end. So I knew food industry was something that I loved. And I had worked in like pop and fresh pie shop for all of my high school years. So I knew a lot about working in restaurants, but I think, you know, I still wanted the job in marketing. And so after about a year and a half working in Minneapolis in this restaurant, I got this opportunity for a job interview in New York. I came out here, I interviewed, the man offered me a job in this marketing company. I didn't know anybody. I really didn't know anyone. I just decided this is what I wanted to do. I want to go to a city. I want to do something. You know, I was bored. So I just packed up like three boxes, two suitcases, a sleeping bag. And I moved here without knowing anyone. I found an apartment. I found this roommate over the phone who was, you know, my first roommate for a year. And then we ended up, you know, finding a small apartment and, I came here and worked at the marketing company and I loved it and it was really interesting and I did a lot. But at the same time, as I would walk, I lived um, in walking distance to the business, which was over on 11th or no 10th Avenue and 38th Street, 38th. I would I eventually moved into Hell's Kitchen in um, the second year I moved here and I started walking up and down 9th Avenue and thinking, wow, look at all these cute storefronts. This would be such a good place to open a shop or a bakery or a cafe or a restaurant. And I had this idea in my mind, like it started to become obsessed with thinking of opening a business like that, even if, you know, I still was in the marketing company. So after about three years there, I said, you know, my heart is just not in this. I'm going to go to culinary school. So I went to New York restaurant school because at the time it was one of the best choices for kind of a shorter program where you would still write a business plan and a proposal for your own business. So I did that. I wrote a business plan for a restaurant, which I staged on 9th Avenue and 55th Street, <laughs> which is mm -hmm. um, kind of funny, but in the restaurant, it was a restaurant with a, some really nice baked goods and cooked food and everything. But then my first job outside of 
after cooking school was at Boulay. I wanted to, I was interested in the pastry department. So I was going to do this internship and for like a one month unpaid internship in pastry. And when I got there, the day I got there, the pastry chef was Bill Yassis, who's pretty well known. He's a, a wonderful person. And he told me, you know, I just hired someone in pastry. So I think you're going to have to work in Garmanger. So here I was, okay, I wanted to do pastry, but I went into Garmanger and I ended up doing the savory side. So first the, the Garmanger and the salad station and then the meat station and then the fish station for like about a year. And then I kept saying, you know, is there a job in the pastry kitchen? You know, and finally I got over to the pastry kitchen and I felt like that was really what I wanted to do. It was really satisfying and wonderful. And David Boulay was an excellent mentor because he was so creative and so driven and had such a vision for what he wanted from his restaurant. This was when he first opened his Boulay, his dream restaurant in 1987. So I was there in the opening crew. And so it was a really cool time to be there. All the critics were coming in and everything. And so I started working in the pastry kitchen and it was fantastic. But I realized every day I had to taste all these things that were really sweet. Like you had to taste every sorbet, every ice cream, every thing to make sure they were okay. And I felt feel ill by the end of the day because it was so much sugar. And I said, you know, I love baking, but what is not so sweet? Bread, you know, bread is my passion, really. I love bread and it's not as, I think I could eat work with bread without feeling ill from the sugar all the time. I don't think I can handle sugar every day. So I talked to David Boulay and he said, you know, I have these people I know in France and maybe you should do an internship there. And I was getting ready to go on to the next thing. I'd worked there for about two plus years and it was just a good time to move on. So he helped me set up an internship for like a month in this bakery in this tiny little town called Flayosque in the south of France where David himself had done work with them. Um, he's, stayed there and he worked with Roger Roger Verger. So he knew this, these different people and he knew this carpenter who had built the facade of his bakery or his restaurant. So I stayed with the carpenter and his wife while I worked in a bakery. It's very random, you know, so I, I had to speak French because nobody there in that town spoke English whatsoever. I was going to say, did you have to learn French because it's yeah, not- Yeah, <laughs> I did. And I, I mean, I'd practiced it in, in high school and I had taken it for a little bit in college. So I was you know, I knew how to speak French. I loved French, but I wasn't practicing for about six years or something. So it was, took me a while to catch on to everything. But I I was quiet when I was doing my internship, but I asked questions, took notes, and I worked the overnight shift with um, the baker that ran this bakery. And they thought I was very weird. Why would this American woman come here, stay up all night, standing here watching us make dough and make baguettes and like bake them? Who cares? You know, but I really cared. I wanted to see this. I wanted to be in France in a bakery. So that was my first month. And then the next month I organized with this man who owned, he was a baker for a restaurant. It was another random connection. And he let me watch him and he was, gave me more information and he was in Nice. So I stayed in Nice and Cannes, that area for another, actually he was in Cannes. So I stayed there for another month and then I went to Paris and I found an internship in a bakery called Moulin de la Vierge, which was, um, owned by this man named Basile Camir, who's a really wonderful baker. And he had had Dan Leader do an internship. So he was American. He used, got used to American bakers randomly coming out of the blue and asking to see do an internship. So he let me do that. So across the three places I saw baguettes and I saw sourdough breads and different kinds of breads being made. And it was pretty traditional at that time because it was quite a while ago. And now the bread is a hundred percent different in, in France, like in Paris and everything. It's phenomenal. But it was pretty basic at that time, but it's still good, you know? So I, I got some basic, really good knowledge, came back to New York. And at that time um, I was 
with uh, dating someone who was working at, at um, Mondrian restaurant and Tom Colicchio was starting out in his first restaurant. That was the first time he really ran a place of his own in New York City. So he was running Mondrian and he said, I really like to do everything under this roof. I want to make homemade bread too. So why don't you do a two week um, tryout here to see if you can make bread we could use for the restaurant. So I took one of the ovens that we had and I put stones in it and I made it into a bread oven and I put like little water pans and everything because it wasn't didn't have steam. And um, I created a bread oven in their kitchen that they had. It was a beautiful kitchen. And so I started making some some of the doughs that I had tried in France. And I worked on all my recipes and I came up with a sourdough and another recipe that they all loved right away. So after the two weeks, I said, why don't you join us and stay on for, you know, and work here making the bread. And then in a bonus was that I had worked at Boulay in pastry. So I got to serve, plate all the desserts every night too. <laughs> so I did pastry and bread. And so I did that for um, about two and a half years. But slowly at that time, I started secretly writing my business plan because I, I knew I was ready now to do my own thing. And, and instead of it being this restaurant that I had written about in culinary school, it was going to be a bakery. And first of all, it was a bakery cafe. And then the people that I knew that were kind of worldly and wise, I showed them my business plan and they said, this is way too risky for someone who has no idea, you know, what they're getting into. Why don't you just start with a simple, tiny little storefront with just bread, a little store takeout, you know, and have the bread oven in the back and just you get some used equipment and keep your risk very, very low, mm -hmm. which was hard to list to hear. I was just really devastated thinking like, I want a cafe. I want it to be all these other things. But, you know, it was true. I didn't have experience doing that. So I listened to them. And I kept my risk low and I opened just this little space on Ninth Avenue. It was 650 square feet. The rent was $2,000 a month and it was a low risk. I had five employees and some used equipment. So it was, it was all that they had suggested to me. And that's how I started. That was back in the day in, in 1992. <laughs> so... No, it's still it's still pretty impressive because you have to do um, and you have to know so many um, little deals and they are uh, on the business side, you know, um, like you can be a good baker and know you have good recipes and obviously um, have experience um, in uh, making all this, you know, baking goods. But it's there is another side, a business side of business that that includes you know hiring paying salaries you know um renting um buying equipment renting space you know things like that and um this is one of the things that um scare a lot of people to start their own businesses because they might have a good idea or ha be pas passionate about something did you even know how to write a business plan where did you get all this uh, you know knowledge or experience well it's about knowledge <laughs> yeah my college education was, um, I had an, my major was economics and psychology. So I was focusing on business oriented things. The college I went to didn't have a business major, but at least I had some, some classes in business related things, marketing, accounting, and econ. And then having worked, I really hadn't worked. I mean, I worked in the office, the, the marketing company for three years, but I hadn't run a business at all. So it was definitely a stretch, but, um, when I went to the culinary school, I learned how to write a business plan. So I used some of the format of that. And then I went back to one of my mentors, which is the man that had opened those two restaurants that I worked at in Minnesota years ago, um, because he was a very successful restaurateur. And I showed him my business plan and he was very helpful in helping me just to make sure that I was planning the financial part of it correctly with, 
you know, how, how much it would cost and the different costs that I should think about because I didn't really know all the things that I should be taking into account for, you know, running a business and all the bills that you would have. And so I used some of his thoughts on that. And even then it still fell short. But after, interestingly enough, after my first year being open, my business plan was correct and I was able to break even with that exactly kind of like the sales numbers that I had put out in my first proposal. I might product mix was different, but it was surprising that it did actually break even and it worked. And then I think it was just like, I mean, I did do different kinds of, you know, I kept it small in the beginning, but then when in year four, we felt like we really needed more space because it, because it was so crowded in our space. And then I expanded and each time that I expanded, it was a little bit of a stretch and it, was a stressful time because of the cost of renovation, the cost of just ex buying more equipment and then having to borrow money to pay for all that. And then to hire all these new people to make the products in order to pay that increased rent and all that. It's, it's a big leap. And when we moved to Chelsea Market and added that on, that was quite a big leap. Um, mm -hmm. I had a few people in the office that were helping me. So they were kind of helping me do the business side along with the production side, but I was kind of running or like overseeing both, but they were doing quite a bit to help me. But I have to say that, you know, over the different expansions, some of them were more successful than others, but then over in, um, well, in 2020, no, I'm sorry, 2020, 2000, excuse me, 2002, my husband um, joined the company at doing our sales and he became our sales um, person who met all the chefs and really helped to build the wholesale business up and really built a lot of great relationships. And then over the years, he got more and more involved in the office. And then several years ago, he took over the whole financial side. So now he and I run it together. He runs that business side. He's very, very decisive and able to navigate and help figure out what's the best choice when it comes to different things happening. So I can't take all the, the you know, claim the benefit, you know, the all the skills because it's not really all me. It really, I really needed help to run the business at a certain point because it's just so complex. And um, I don't have all the skills to do that perfectly. And I'm more oriented towards the production side. So I would say, you know, finding somebody who's able to help you that you can really trust to run a business with you is great. It's hard to be good at everything. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely uh, a stretch because for creative people and, you know, uh, baking and creating pastries and things like that, I think it's it's a creative job. You know, create some creative people do not do not think like business people, you know, it's all about art and creation and things like that. So the business side is always a scary side. It's very hard to find a person who has both like, you know, like the right side of brain and the left side of brain yes, is the exactly. same you know there is always you know part of it that is um more or less <laughs> so, exactly. so it's um, hard to, it, it, it takes a very special person to do all of that i mean and also it just there's so much to do to run a business and to create products and to supervise the people making them and to make sure the quality is consistent and everything's wonderful every day that you have to somehow share the work because I think you would die, burn yourself out from having, doing it all alone. You know, you need a little oh, help. Oh, definitely. 
Are you still making, um, you know, bread and pastry and all the um, the goods inside the shop or you have a separate place where you bake and then you just bring it to the shop? So, yeah, that's what we do now. And um, we have a, a very nice kitchen in Queens in Long Island City. And when we were um, we were baking all of our bread in Chelsea Market and then the pastries in Hell's Kitchen, both locations were very, very crowded and, and tight on space. And at that time, Chelsea Market told us that we really needed to give back some of the space we had because our lease was ending and we were renewing it into a different lease. But the people that owned the building had bought it from the previous owner that was, you know, who my original landlord was. The new owners wanted to cut it up into smaller pieces and have a lot more businesses in there and have it more like a food, you know, like a food market that it is today. So they didn't want production there. They wanted only to have you know, maybe a tiny space where you do production, but the rest was all just serving it and eating the food there. So we had to find another space and that was in 2012. So in 2011, 2012. So at that time we had to find our, we found a space in Queens and we moved um, the bread baking to Queens. And then once we had the bread kitchen set up, then we were able to move the pastry kitchen to Queens so that we could have everything in one place. And that way, when we have to transfer our food, and our wholesale orders and everything, we could have the drivers come to one place and pick everything up at once and transfer it. It was just so complicated to be picking up in one place and picking up in the other place. And we did that for years. But um, when we consolidated into one space, it was better for a lot of reasons. And it saved us money and like just um, in terms of having all the staff in one place. The rent and everything having an additional location that's very big is not saving us money. <laughs> but, um, but it is useful to have a second a space that you can bake in the only downside is that you're really not having those fresh from the oven smells coming out of the oven constantly and i do miss that and i think it's really important if you can afford the cost of the rent with production going on in a space in manhattan you know it's not easy to do because the rent is so high yeah. and the equipment takes up so much of the space that you might need for your customers to sit down or to have your counter or whatever but it is really wonderful. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. Um and are you are you still enjoying what you do in you know the the baking process as much as you did, you know, 30 years ago when you started? Um Well, you know, I for a while I had to really delegate and let everyone else bake and and I could just check in and see what they were doing and then during the pandemic a lot of people wouldn't come to work. They were afraid of coming to work, even though literally the kitchen was so safe because there was no one in it. It was empty, you know, but um, they just didn't want to come to work. They were afraid. So I ended up going back into the pastry kitchen, which I hadn't done in 30 years. And I got to do a lot of work in pastry. I made all the cake layers. I made the frostings. I made cookie dough. I did, you know, everything. And so, and it was really fun because I got back in touch with the products and then I was able to spend, you know, probably at least one or two days a week also baking bread and being in the bread, of, bread oven and, and like shaping the bread and filling in the staffing there. So I was really getting my hands into everything. And it was really enjoyable because it reminded me why I loved it so much. And also it was nice to know that I could still do it and I hadn't forgotten how um, all of the, you know, technical stuff. So I really enjoyed that. And I mean, today I have more of a staff and everyone wants their hours. And so I don't fill their shifts too often right now I just check in with what they're doing and I work on product development and like quality and I'll like I'll look at all the different doughs each day and make sure things are going right but I don't 
make the dough myself, for instance. But it's you know I'm I'm involved and I really do enjoy it still. So it's okay. it came back into the kitchen more and I like it more that way. Are you still using the same kind of recipes, or they are evolving based on you know obviously uh, the changes in farming, the changes in, in you know ingredients, the changes in obviously like there's more allergies nowadays. Seems like people have more allergies to foods. Um, do your recipes in evolve like they change based on customers' experience on you know, demand, or do you stick to kind of like old traditional recipes that you, you know, you learned back in the days? Well, I mean, all the recipes we have, I, I kind of made my own from an idea that I got when I was somewhere and then I wanted to create it and make it more personal. So they're all, you know, recipes I came up with or I, or one of our staff, like one of our pastry chefs or something might've come up with and brought along the way. But then over the years, we've evolved what flour we use in it possibly, or just the way we make it or the size or the shape or like the fillings just to, to try to make them more up to date with what people are looking for. But also um, the one thing that happened during COVID was that I became the purchaser too. So now I do all the purchasing so I can really, I've really gotten to know where we get everything and who we order certain ingredients from that. I wasn't sure like what they would offer. And now I can get, you know, special flowers that I might want to try because I'm the one who's actually calling them and talking to them about their ingredients. So that's been very nice. And I feel like I'm more in touch with what's up, what the options are. And as you say, with the allergies and everything, you know, we, it's tricky because we have flour everywhere in here. And then we also have flour in most of the ingredients in most of the recipes. So it's very hard to be like gluten-free or to have, we can't be a nut-free bakery because many of our most beloved products have nuts in them. And so you know, we try to be very, very careful about when we use nuts to not ever let them be near things without nuts so that they are safe for people who are have nut allergies. But in fact, it's a bakery with nuts in it. So if they're extremely allergic, you know, they shouldn't eat it. So yeah, I feel like there's you almost have to have a specific bakery that's strictly like nut free or strictly flour free if you're going to go down that path and be do it right. You know, we have we can do vegan products and that's possible or we have a few gluten free items, but they're still made in a bakery where there is flour in the air. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting and tricky, but I do know that being, you know, baking for the public has changed and especially with what people can and can't eat. And, you know, for me, market research is still one of my favorite parts of what we do and being in the store and hearing what people like and what they ask for and what they wish we had is my favorite kind of market research because that's truly just right directly from the customer into my ear. So Mm -hmm. are you are you someone um are you someone and your family you know your parents your grandparents um are you someone who truly believes that you know bread should be part of your you know daily or weekly uh meal it's something that should be part of your meal something that you you personally eat on a regular basis you know i love yeah i do think bread should be part of a meal and i don't eat it every day i try to be you know sort of like cautious of it and not just constantly be eating bread but I eat bread I always bring home a big selection of bread on weekends and we always have it with all of our meals and um when I grew up my grandmothers both would bake just traditional like white pan bread and we would have it with jam when we would go to their house or butter and it was always really one of my favorite things and going you know growing up at home my dad actually worked at Pillsbury 
for all his entire career, 35 years. Wow. And he, um, yeah, it was really funny. And he would, he was director of sales for quite a bit of the time he was there. And it, whenever there would be a new product line coming out, he would be involved in doing testing. So we would get all these different biscuits, those canned biscuits, you know, that Pop and Fresh used to pop right out of whatever. We would get um, canned biscuits or canned, this little thing in the refrigerated case with the with dough in it that you would make into mm-hmm. cinnamon rolls or yeah. whatever different things wraps around, you'd wrap it around a hot dog or something like that. So we tried all that. And so it was funny that I actually would try that stuff, but it was kind of artificial. It was made with kind of like different weird things in it to keep it in a can like that and have the color. And at one point, really interestingly, um, some people, since he still worked at Pillsbury when I started the bakery, he you know, got me in touch with some local, like um, the wholesale distribution people for Pillsbury. And they said, oh, we have these cinnamon rolls and we had these other things that you could make, save you a lot of time. You just put them in the freezer and then just bake them. <laughs> Excuse me. So they dropped off this like shipment of these different cinnamon rolls and things. And we didn't have a freezer. So we put it in the refrigerator and they started to rise. And the color was this bright, bizarre, like yellowish brown color. It was already before it was even baked and it smelled so terrible, like so artificial. And we all looked at it. We were all making like such beautiful natural food. Like no way ever. (laughs) No, (laughs) no way. We're never even ever thinking of baking anything like that and selling it. It's just not what we do. And so, you know, we're very pure, real purists, but um, it was easy to tell like what's the right thing to do. I mean, I just knew and making it from scratch with really nice ingredients, always having whole wheat and everything, whole grains. Like I'm really into grains and health and um, fiber and all that. Yeah, I totally understand that because um, now looking back at the 70s and 60s and 80s and even watching the movies from that uh, you know time period you see what people used to leave uh, to leave you know to eat and you know to consume what was um in groceries the stores and there's a lot of obviously processed food and you know the bread that you could put on the counter and it will be the same for weeks which we all know why it's, it's fresh you know exactly. so Ooh, so and everybody cool. kind of yeah <laughs> And, and there was a whole generation raised on that, you know, and um, it's funny, but I, the reason I've asked you about bread, because I love, I, personally, I love bread and uh, discovery of your store was such a joy for me because I kind of, without even knowing your story, I kind of felt that you had this bread that was very similar to you to European bread and I didn't even know that you you know you were in France you studied in France and then you you know personally you developed this kind of you know recipes based on so many different experiences and it was um the beginning of artisan you know business of this you know bread um because for me um you know growing up in Eastern Europe um bread was a huge part of meal of my life so my parents and I when we moved to you say 30 years ago uh, 30 plus years ago um, uh, we were kind of you know lost in terms of finding good bread we couldn't I think I stopped eating bread um, when we moved to America like I couldn't understand that kind of bread you know Um, and basically you know 30 years ago 
there were, there were no such thing as European bread, you know, or European kind exactly. of bread. So mm-hmm. I just didn't eat bread at all. It was part of maybe of some, you know, like sandwich or something, but as just a treat, as a piece of bread, you know, with the butter, it just mm-hmm. ceased to exist in my family for many, many years. And my mom was the one who'd always, every time we move, you know, from like, you know, California to Oregon to Texas to, you know, New York, we were, like we were always trying to find bread. Like it was it's because it was such a huge part of our life. Every meal was the, with the bread. My my dad actually grew up eating bread even with fruit, which is wow. like, yeah, it was just <laughs> such a huge, yeah, because it was such <laughs> So, because I mean, you know, he he is a child of parents who were in the war, and bread is just kind of like a symbol of food, you know, because that's how yeah. you survived the World War Two. So yeah. anyway, so yeah, and um, I didn't eat bread until I think I moved to New York, um, and that was about twenty years ago. And obviously, every time we would travel to Europe, I would just stuff my face into breads, like everything, <laughs> you know. Even the, the bread they serve at the restaurant is completely was different from like what you can buy in the general grocery store here in America. So I was always kind of looking for that kind of bread. And um, I, now, you know, every time I'm around Hell's Kitchen, I buy your bread. And I also found a few places downtown close to, you know, home. And now you can kind of find you know, good bread in, in, in like in whole foods, some of the bread that they, yeah. you know, and so, but still it was just, it was a big part of, uh, of our meal. And for a while I didn't eat bread at all. Like I, I just didn't understand what was this bread and you know, it didn't taste it like. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I imagine it's so bad compared to what you had been used to in growing up and everything and just your culture what good bread is, you know, I think Americans just didn't really get it. They didn't know what what they were missing. And then finally today people have had exposure to good bread, but they don't some, you know, if you're in the middle of wherever you go in the middle of this country or in towns that are not like a big city, you still may have kind of basic options for bread and the grocery store bread is your best choice, which still isn't that great. But Mm. I'm so happy that there are a lot more good bakeries across the whole country. And one of the things that has happened over the years is that there was a, well, I love this organization called the Bread Bakers Guild of America. It was started exactly 30 years ago, I think, or 29. Anyway, we, um, I was involved with it from the first day it opened. It, it began because the person that had the vision for it started to gather some of the bakeries that he had heard about that were just opening kind of this new wave of artisan bread. And he wanted to create an organization of bakers that could help each other out by being a place for education and for sharing information and for like supporting each other. So we would have different meetings and like educational seminars and events that would happen and you would meet up in different cities and go to, uh, you know, in a like there would be some kind of a, maybe at a trade show, you would have something like that where you would get to know other bakers. And then we developed a network of bakers across the country that could you know, you could turn to them and ask them, well, what happened to your, what about your oven? And what about this kind of dough? And what about this sourdough starter? And then there was a newsletter, which had all these really interesting formulas in it for all these wonderful breads. And then there were like the bread, international bread baking competition that Bread Bakers Guild sent a team to it. And they did very well because they were very, you know, practicing all these different skills. So it was a kind of a transition from that terrible bread to like this amazing knowledge of bread. And 
I went on a really cool um, educational trip to France at one point uh, with the Bread Bakers Guild where I met these guys who were the Mayor Ouvrier de France MOFs that were teaching the class and they were showing us their, their skills of shaping and the bread, their hand skills, how they shaped the bread work. They were so, so, so graceful and amazing to watch and just their knowledge of starters and pre-ferments and things like that. So anyway, over the years, the Bread Bakers Guild continues to grow and it continues to gather all these small bakeries from around the whole country. And the, the list of bakeries in it now is huge. And it, there really are a lot of interesting small bakeries and they're milling their own grains and they're using heritage grains from their local farms. And, you know, they're really growing in these directions that are so, so wonderful and so important for health and like just quality. So it's a great, I'm really happy to see this in America and it, even in across you know, small towns and things too across the country. So, yeah, French cuisine is another level. Um, I love France. I I've been there so many times. I lived in Paris for a few months, and uh, I remember seeing like every morning how the locals, you know, Parisians would go to the local store. What was you know part of European culture, it's just started to uh, like emerge in big cities of America. That's what we noticed, for example, in half kitchen. Half kitchen kind of neighborhoods were always part of like European neighborhoods. Like you don't go to another district to buy a bread or pastry, or, like you know, croissant or something like that, you go to a local bakery because that's exactly. your place to go to. Um, and every morning I would see how the locals would go to local, you know, bakery and get like, a, a, you know, baguette, you know, and it was it's such a staple of French people that it's almost became kind of like a joke. Like, have you seen a French without a baguette in the morning? Like, no, because <laughs> Like it's such a big part of, and it has to be a very good one, you know. And exactly. I tried in different parts, in different places, and they all very, very good. Um, so it's like it's because it's 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 very cultural, and they just don't. They, I guess they can't even imagine having breakfast without it, you know, or having a lunch without it, you know. So um, yeah, it's a it's an interesting uh, you know observation when you go to. Europe and now you see a little bit of that happening in you know in like in New York and other big cities um, mm -hmm. but it, it hasn't been like that <laughs> exactly exactly it's it was not common but now luckily it happens more <laughs> and you're yeah. right like people just go to the bakery in their neighborhood and in those countries because there are so many great options you know here we still have to travel a bit further to go to get the best of everything but Mm -hmm. There are more places in the neighborhood too, which is good. On one hand, it's very easy to get used to big grocery stores because it's like one place for everything and you kind of like get everything kind of what you need. However, I think part of the experience, even like food experience and just neighborhood experience is when you have a few shops and you buy like seafood at this place, you know, bread at this place, um, vegetables at this place. And not yeah. only do you support those local businesses, but also you have that kind of, you know, interesting kind of life, you know, because you get to experience different places, different, you know, sellers, different products. It's just not in one place. But I think it's just cultural because you go, yes. we, we, you know, in America, it's very common to go and shop at the mall versus go from shop to shop. You yes. know, it's 
it's it's just easier also to be in one spot so it's it's it will take probably time or maybe not at all in some places to for the local businesses or for customers so consumers to kind of adapt or accept that business model where you can um, go to different shops versus one place and have that kind of experience um (laughs) still it's still a stretch for some people like they're used to just convenience of their supermarket or their whole foods or whatever but you know there are definitely people that appreciate going from one shop to another and i i love shopping that way i mean i have my favorite fish store and my you know bakery and different things like that that i i choose and i try not to just go to one grocery store and get everything if i can help it <laughs> yeah yeah no i know i when i go when i go to um when i go to europe i do exactly this um and also if i go because my husband is from argentina and in argentina you do have a mall i mean like a grocery store kind of like whole foods but it's not as they still they still prefer to go and buy like meat at this place prosciutto at that place bread at that place so you go in your neighborhood and and like for example my husband's mother she's like no 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 don't buy fruit from this you have to go to this shop it's not just fruit it's like don't buy cherries from this store there's like cherries in in that shop are better because it's from you know that and that farm or whatever um so there's still this kind of like experience you know that i i enjoy um <laughs> that's amazing yeah very 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 detailed that's great yeah yeah and and they, they pride themselves and they 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 enjoy doing it it's interesting it's entertaining you know you go you talk you already know the owner of the shop you know them even almost by name you go there and they already know what you need what you like and it's kind of like exchange of you know how's your day exchange of information talk about something and then you buy what you like and then you move on to another store. (laughs) exactly i it's that's exactly and it's really nice that's part of the personal connection to the people the experience like that whole package is part of the the joy of that really nice Yeah. Did you find uh, there is because um, you worked in the, you know, in the baking industry here, but also you studied with, you know, with uh, French bakers and things like that. Um, did you find any like what are the kind of similar different aspects of this industry, you know, like in France versus USA? I'm just curious, like how the, you know, the colleagues interact, uh, whether like how the bosses talk to, you know, subordinates like how the whole process and you know communication things like that um it's it's a little different here than it is there but in france you have an apprenticeship program so the people who want to become a a baker they have to go through a process where they go to a school and then they have to work doing like the most basic work you know the lowest level for two or three years and get that credit um whatever sort of like accreditation or something i don't know what they call it but they become an apprentice and then they become a like full-fledged baker a boulanger but it's a long process whereas here you know people think that they can learn something in three weeks a month and then they can move to the next thing and the next thing and they want to know everything in a short amount of time and they're not really willing to pay their dues in the same way but if you want to be a really good bread baker, I think it does take years because um, you have to work with seasonality and like different times of year, it really affects your dough because of the warmth and the cold and the humidity and all the things that happen. But um, in 
you know, in those countries, they're, I mean, everyone's proud, but I think there's almost more pride in the process and the making of the bread and like having chosen that as their, their, their skill or their craft that they want to do. It, it's something that people really have a proud, a pride in. And here sometimes people work and they're proud, but at the same time, it's kind of like it's their job and they don't, our country doesn't, um, revere jobs in the food industry necessarily or like give them some kind of like special recognition so that they would feel that same pride in having chosen that for their career path so i wish that people would you know really really revere the bakers and the cooks i mean and, and a lot of people appreciate what people what people who make the food do but um it's a different culture completely and you know here like even there's an interesting thing that happened where in France, when I was doing those internships, they would, you know, if I would go to their house to eat the bread, they would almost like bless the bread, the loaf of bread, the baguette, you know, before they would start the meal. And then if there was any scrap left, you would have to like wrap it up and keep it off to the side. Or if something fell to the floor, you know, it was like horrible to see this piece of bread fall down where here, like a dinner roll goes on the ground. Like no one, my staff barely even bend over to pick it up after like, 15 minutes I'll see it on the ground still like they don't really think of bread as something special or like a thing you have to like consider it sacred you know it's just a different culture but mm -hmm. I try to teach them about it but you know still um, it's, it's just a different mindset yeah there's a reason why we consider you know living in a pre kind of wasteful culture because culture yeah because um you know there's for example Europe went through World War II Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I mean, America too, but not to that extent. So they do know the price of food, the price of like little pieces left. And I've noticed that with German, I've noticed that with Italians, I've noticed that with French, you know, um, the food, you know, has been important in terms of, you know, sustaining life. So yes. um, it was never a wasted, even little pieces, like you mentioned, would be wrapped up and put aside and even, and I am actually, I'm the same with my, with my kids and with my family. I don't like wasting food and I try to, to teach them to like if they don't want to like if they don't finish I don't want to force them to like till they throw up but mm -hmm. <laughs> I put it uh, I put it in the plastic ware you know and then mm -hmm. and I save it till the next day and I like a lot of times I eat the leftovers I just can't throw away good food and just and, and the same with bread uh, I grew up my grand I remember my grandmother used to say every time like I would not finish a piece of bread, especially a piece of bread. Um, she would say, "This little piece will haunt you at night. That was <laughs> like that will come at night in your dream and will hunt you down." And I would be like so scared that it will be like a ghost or something that I would like eat it or I will save it and eat it next day or later in the day. But we would never throw away. So, that's, that's, um, so for yeah. me, because I worked in the in the restaurant uh, industry as well. Like when I was in college, I I, I was um, a waitress um, for like a, a year, and I remember seeing so much of the waste just going yeah. down. Like people not finishing, not taking it home, or like just throwing like bread and all that stuff away. Because back then, the sustainability, the whole like trends now with the 
you know, with environment and everything, it, it, it was not part of any industry. So yes. it just went into garbage. And mm -hmm. I was shocked. I was like, so oh, sad. my God, like there's so many people who cannot afford food or like hungry or there's like, you know, kids in Africa that do not have food. Like, how can we throw so much food away? So for me, it was a shocking revelation because I was working behind the scene and I've never seen anything like that. So, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's so true. And it really that that's overwhelming when you see all that waste and when you're not used to it and it's part of your set, like you said, the excessive waste of our country here. And I think people are learning more today and they're being a little more careful and thoughtful and de depends on where you go and who they are. But, you know, it takes time to educate and re-educate. So something yeah. that we all keep working on. Yeah. I mean, it's also like, doesn't help when you name, you know, doggy bags, you know, like why would <laughs> you, have, you know, name like, human food that you can take home not for dogs for yourself like doggy bags it's kind of like i don't know where it's coming from but <laughs> it's very funny it but, doesn't very appetizing at all exactly like why would it, and then you know a lot of people just ashamed working with doggy bags but it shouldn't be a shame because you pay for this food it's been cooked by cooks like you said in the kitchen right. who probably put so much effort into that yes. and you're taking it home and you can finish it tomorrow it's gonna be when you reheat it it will be better than something you bought at the grocery store you know what exactly. i mean so exactly. for me <laughs> absolutely ask for my to pack up leftovers if i have them when i go out to a meal definitely yeah and especially now it's it's expensive to go out to throw yes. even like it even Oh, I could never understand that. So yeah, um, and that that actually uh, prompts me to um, another question because your baking business, the way you build your model is that you rely and you support like locally sourced organic produce and you are really into sustainability and you are a big part, like your business is a big part of like local nonprofits and you donate your food. You try not to get anything, you know, wasted. You co you compose, you recycle, you use, you know, recyclable materials like, you know, um, containers and things like that. Um, and you started that long time before it became, you know, fashionable and trendy. Like what made you, I guess, uh, you know, what made you want to invest in that? Because it's not, obviously it's not cheap um, in a way, you know, it's much cheaper to buy something like mess produced whether local organic you know or to invest into recyclable i guess containers versus plastic containers or something you know um right. how how did you like you know decide to make it part of your business well i think it just you know after seeing waste like you say like taking the garbage out and just seeing like how much trash there is it just starts to get on your nerves. And I feel like, and seeing bread, when we have extra, our batch will be too much, we'll make too much. And wanting it to be able to go to people that will be able to enjoy it and eat it and, you know, sending it off to um, the city harvest where they can serve at different soup kitchens, things like that. I mean, for me, that's so important because there are problems with our whole society and the lack of food for some people. And then there's this excess for others. And so, just kind of being aware of that and not letting it, not just taking the easy way out, the cheapest, the easiest. I don't do that when it's not, it's, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take us anywhere in the future in the long term. And, you know, I have a son who, um, uh, eight, 19 now, actually, he just turned 19 and he 
is um, uh, he's somebody who you know is coming up in the world, and I don't want to have the world be polluted and terrible for him. You know, I have to think forward to the next generation and the one after that, and hope that there are, it gets better and better instead of worse. And so, you know, just making being thoughtful about everything from the early days. I always cared about that, and like I, my grandparents grew up on farms. I've always been interested in like farms and like growing things and you know, like organic farming versus industrial farming and GMOs and all that. I mean, just all that is such a, an important, even if I have a small amount of control over a small, tiny piece of it, at least I'm doing my part, you know, and the more people that do their part, it adds up after a while. So I've mm -hmm. always felt that it was important not to just take the easy way out, but to do the best we can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am, I am uh, with you on that. I've been concerned about this for, for a while and it, it hurts me to see and um you know how much of the general waste and uh, and just to see how everything is changing because of that you know how the beaches are changing how the ocean is changing how just going outside and see all this trash um and uh so yeah it was you know um I was I was really um you know pleasantly surprised and um to know that your your business is you know doing all this, these things all these amazing things um and it's you know it you don't advertise it very like openly it's just part of your business model and so that just makes it you know emmy's bread so much more special <laughs> thank you thank you very much for saying that i mean i think that it you know our commitment to that just is part of our ethos and so people who recognize that, you know, it's, it's nice. And I'm glad to, that yeah. people can see the difference. So where do you see the future of Emmy's bread? Oh, well, I think we're going to continue on with our, on the path we're on, but maybe hopefully we'll be able to make a few more um, new and interesting products that are, you know, like part of what we do is, as I said, we have our wholesale business, which the whole um, part of that is that the customers want everything every day of the week, every day of the year you know every holiday and they want sort of the same things and each one has their own selection of what they want so it makes you have to you kind of have to make this huge selection of products not always everything you love making like sandwich rolls you know hundreds of burger buns or whatever I mean they're very nice ones you know but they're not still that interesting so I'm hoping that I can continue to drive the business towards that artisanal side where we can make more of those special things that are unique and like seasonal and that are using those local grains and just continue to um, build on that along with making the things that our wholesale customers want and and maybe simplifying over the years in the next 10 years ahead I don't know how many years I want to run a bakery but I don't see any I don't see stopping anytime soon so mm -hmm. just continue to do it so that it's still fun I guess as part of it too mm-hmm do you do you go around and taste um other bake you know other bakers products just out of curiosity like you know absolutely yes and I mean more more so in other cities than even in New York sometimes I don't check out New York things as much as I should um because you know I I'm here and I go into my own little routine to and from my own little work and my own little apartment and I don't go anywhere beyond that mm -hmm. but if I go out of town if I go on a trip I go to every bakery I can find. I go to all the ones that sound really interesting. And I try to find out what's happening in different cities and different countries. And 
that's part of the fun of being in this industry is the joy of tasting and and trying new things and seeing what's going on in, in the world of baking. So I'm always constantly trying new things as much as I can. Yeah. My whole family loves it. We all seek it out together. So we're, we're tasters. <laughs> we love food. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We love food too. So I'm a foodie too. I, I can be very simple, like not demanding, but then I can also appreciate some very, um, you know, special treat, <laughs> but I am the same way. I'm like, if I go out, I, you know, not like if I travel, I mean, if I travel, I'm, I'm the same way. I like, I try to uh, go around and taste different things. And um, because it's just, it's, especially when you travel to another country, it's just so different and, and it's a different di diversity of ingredients. Some of the ingredients you can't even purchase here. Um, so, and it's just the way it's like, you know, there's like, I don't know, probably, you know, but there's a joke. You, you can make a bread at home based on everything that your grandma used to do, right? Used to use, like, you know, but it will still turn out differently. Not only because it's you who baked it, but also because ingredients, even if you use the same, you know, like flour, egg, it it's still different. It tastes differently because of how the, you know, what the farmers use for the you know for the um to to for the wheat to grow wheat what they use to grow chicken to produce this eggs so exactly. even if you mix everything sugar everything together it still would never would not taste the same like i always complain to my mom like she if they they live in germany right now so every time she's like gives me a recipe or if i travel and taste what she makes at home and i make it at home it doesn't taste the same, even though I use the same ingredients. <laughs> it's so true. And, it, and I think a lot of people don't realize that, but it's very different. And the, just the, the flour and the, the eggs and everything are vary from one place to another. And even the oven and the water. And, you know, so yeah, it really awful. is. It, you can hardly duplicate it, um, it from one place to another. Um, I once went to this interesting seminar and it was put on by... Um, some bread bakers in California, but one of the people who was visiting was um what's his name? Um Miss Um Monsieur Kaiser, who had, had Maison Kaiser and um Eric Kaiser. And so his premise was that you can make everything taste just like you would find in France or somewhere else if you put liquid Levan in it, which is a sourdough starter that's pre-fermented in a um, you know, you stir it's stirred up often and it has a nice sourness, but it's thin and it's very has a sweetness and it's just this perfect thing to add to everything. So his, his technique was to add liquid Levant to everything and make it seem just like it was from France or from Germany or from wherever. So, I mean, of course he's extremely skilled as a baker and his technical skills could help him to do that, but I still feel the flour and everything really matters too. I agree. And um, just, uh, I don't want to keep you long. But last question. Um, what is your favorite savory and sweet product from your bakery? Hmm. Well, that's a great question. So my favorite bread, I think, is the um, peasant wheat with toasted seeds, which is a bread that's made with whole wheat, and it has um, a little white flour in it, but it has a little sourdough starter, and then it has four seeds, pumpkin seeds, sunflower, sesame, and flax. It's very toasty tasting and nutty. It's because it has a coarse whole wheat. It's grainy, like it has a nice fiber. And then when we make these same these little dinner rolls, we put seeds over the whole outside. So they're like a German roll with all the seeds on the top, which I love. 
So that's my favorite role. Right now it's it's not on the menu because we only have one customer that always requests it and they're closed for two months this summer. So we'll have it back starting in September. <laughs> but that's my favorite bread is so good. And then the other, my favorite sweet thing, let's see. I guess I'd have to say the chocolate, the devil's food cake with chocolate silk frosting is my favorite because it's just so decadent and so chocolatey and it's such a perfect birthday cake and it's that perfect treat when you you want to splurge so that's my very favorite of all the sweets I don't have it too often but <laughs> um, it's really good I'm just writing it down in, uh, next time I am <laughs> over at the shop so um, I can try those okay <laughs> yeah try both and especially Hell's Kitchen has the peasant wheat with toasted seed and it has um the sandwich there the, I mean the dinner rolls usually we have them like Wednesday through Saturday and they come in at like 11 a.m. or something like that so you have to get there at the right time <laughs> well thank you so much Amy it was such a pleasure speaking with you thank you so much yeah it's 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 a joy to have people appreciate it so I thank you for your comments and for you recognizing that all the effort that goes into it and hopefully we'll continue on and we'll be here for a long time to come so um, it's been fun to talk to you too and to share some of the information with you so thank you Thank you for listening to an America But Not Really podcast. My name is Alisa. I'm a designer, and I started this podcast because I wanted to share my journey from leaving my country as a teenager to growing up in America, whilst meeting and befriending amazing people of all sorts, some of whom are my guests on this podcast, who join me to share their life experiences. Hope the experiences will inspire, educate, make you feel good, guide you, and make you love. They come from all kinds of backgrounds, but we all have one thing in common. We all live and work and build families and careers in America. You might notice that I might throw here and there an episode that talks about the differences in cultures, but that's because it's part of the idea behind this podcast. Join me for laughters, despairs, and contradictions of my experiences in America and ones of my guests. Don't forget to tune in, rate, and subscribe. To follow the latest updates of the podcast, follow the podcast on Instagram at an American but not really. This podcast is made with the help of this great podcasting platform, Anchor FM.